Richard, you just published a book called Terrorists, Anarchists and Republicans, the Genevans, the Genevans and the Irish in Times of Revolution. Can you tell us what led you to write this book? Yes, I wrote the book because it tells a story that very few people know about. And it's probably the most interesting unknown tale that I've come across in my career. And it's interesting because it tells the story of an attempt in the late 18th century to move the people of the Republic of Geneva to Ireland, more specifically to just outside Waterford in Ireland. And very few historians, very few people know about it at all. There's lots of myths associated with it that I discovered were uh, false. And so it's, it's intellectual history, but it, it's intellectual history with a real narrative. In other words, the crisis at Geneva and why people thought they had to abandon the Republic. The places that they considered moving to, why they decided to go to Ireland and what ultimately happened. Can you give us a brief outline of the structure of the book? So the book begins with Geneva and the crisis at Geneva. The crisis at Geneva means Rousseau because Rousseau was used as the person that if you wanted to reform anything in a republic, you went to Rousseau. And the Genevans that I'm interested in, they are associated with Rousseau. One of them called Francois Divenois. He is the editor of the uh, Geneva edition of Rousseau's works. And they have access to Rousseau's private correspondence in addition to knowing his main writings. And they go to Rousseau, the Republicans, because they think he might have answers for them. And what they discover is that Rousseau's advice is uh, not to try and move the Republic of Geneva because uh, it would fail and really to accept the dominion of France. Uh, because Geneva is obviously a republic on the on the border with France. The French authorities are more involved, more and more involved in the day to day life of the republic. And so the story really begins with the crisis at Geneva and the gradual increase of what I call extremism at Geneva. And extremism really means the sense that you have to develop a radical solution to the problem. And the problem is that the Republicans think that the state is no longer independent. They've lost Republican liberty. Their morals have been corrupted and they need to do something about it. That's a very long winded account of the first part of the book. But the middle part is is about Ireland and it's about why the Genevans end up becoming subjects, British subjects who take an oath of allegiance to George III at Dublin 
And the reason that they end up, end up doing that is because they think Ireland is the least corrupt part of the British economy. They think it's ripe for commercial development. They think that the people have great potential in terms of becoming industrious artisans because the part of Geneva that them that the British are most interested in encouraging is the watchmaking part of of the Genevan economy. So the British are convinced and they subsidize the scheme because they think they're going to get watchmakers to come to Ireland. The Genevans think, well, if Britain goes bankrupt, which is a real possibility, Ireland will be all right. So they choose a part of Ireland that actually, if you if you take the uh, if you take the sea uh, outside Waterford and you look at it from from the sea and you look at the land, it does look a little bit like Geneva, and you can tell why they chose that area particularly. Obviously, there are remarkable international trade routes from Waterford, you know, to the Americas. So they thought it was excellent. Obviously, easy access to Europe as well, mainland Europe. So they, they for all of these reasons, that's what they, that's what they, they choose. And then the final part of the book really relates what happens after, which is why the the new Geneva, this city that's created and that's partially built why it's abandoned and the end of the story is that from being a haven for republicans which is how it was designed it ends up becoming a barracks uh, that then becomes a prison for united irishmen in 1798 and lots of united irishmen are massacred there um, after being imprisoned and it, it goes into folklore new geneva enters into folklore um, James Joyce mentions, mentions it in Ulysses. And the reason is it, it's a place where Republicans are executed. So there's a nice end point to the book, which is really tells the story of how a haven for Republicans becomes a place of Republican murder. Uh, when did you first come across this story of the Genevans and New Geneva and Ireland? Uh, I think I discovered it probably when I was doing my PhD and I did my PhD on what I thought was an unbelievably boring subject which was Jean-Baptiste Say's political economy and the reason that that was deemed to be a very boring subject was because people thought Jean-Baptiste Say was interesting only because of Say's law of markets which was kind of a footnote in the history of economics but also because he wrote uh, a book called The Traité d'Economie Politique in 1803, and it becomes the most popular textbook in economics between 1803, its appearance, and John Stuart Mill's Principles of Political Economy, which appears in 1848. So initially, the plan was it was a PhD on an economics textbook by a very unknown writer. So you couldn't get duller than that. But actually, I discovered that Say, when he was a young man, he was he was a Republican, he was a revolutionary, he was of Huguenot descent, and he became secretary to a political economist called Etienne Clavier. And Etienne Clavier believed he was a reincarnation of John Law. And Etienne Clavier was a merchant and a banker. 
And he was Genevan and he was really one of the main people behind the new Geneva experiment in Ireland. He he died during the terror. He committed suicide in prison before he was due to be guillotined because Clavier becomes a Girondin minister. But Say worked for him for the first uh, uh, few years of the revolution. And it's so Say's famous for his commentaries on Adam Smith. And it was Etienne Clavier's edition, his copy of The Wealth of Nations, that he passed on to Say. So I really discovered that Say's political economy, you can't understand it without knowing Etienne Clavier's political economy. And actually, the story of Etienne Clavier's political economy is very complicated because it, it really arose from the need to protect and try and save small republics like Geneva. Thank you. Was there anything you found particularly interesting or surprising when you conducted the research for the book? I suppose one of the things that I discovered was that Rousseau, where he's presented as a political theorist who can solve your problems and who you would turn to if you wanted to create a popular state, that the Genevans, because they knew him so well, realized that, as they put it, that Rousseau loved peace more than liberty. So that they were ultimately very, very upset, disappointed by, by Rousseau's response to their dilemma, you know, what to do with Geneva and how to make it survive as a republic, because Rousseau was really saying, actually, the world is dominated by large monarchies, Uh, they're commercial, Geneva's weak, it can't defend itself, there's no solution to that problem, give up, you know, accept the, accept the, the decline, the collapse of the state. And um, so that was, that was, that was revelatory, because it, it, it means that you can understand Rousseau in a very, very particular context of political action, of, of, of uh, immediate political problems. And I think that reveals an enormous amount about uh, the people we call theorists. You know, when you see them in practice, then sometimes you realize that their ideas are more nuanced and sophisticated than you might think. How does the bill contribute to your research field and do you expect it to change the, the field? Uh, well, I tend to work on subjects that uh, few other people work on. So I'm not sure if there's a field to change. But uh, let's say 18th century political thought. I suppose by working on this book, one of the things that uh, the, one of the conclusions that I did come to was that I think that there's an end to enlightenment, that you have to think of political thought in the late, late 18th century to be so obsessed with crisis. In other words, everybody thinks that what exists won't last and you have to develop, um, you have to develop new solutions to problems because, you know, your world is collapsing. Obviously, the classic example of that is the republics of Europe. They are not able to maintain themselves. 
any longer. So you have to have ceaseless innovation. Another another element of the end of enlightenment is the collapse of France, you know, relative to Britain. That's deemed to be unnatural. Therefore, that's, you know, why the French Revolution occurs. In the case of Britain, there's a perception of a mercantile system. You know, Adam Smith condemns Britain and its empire. So does David Hume. So everybody expects change. So one of the one of the conclusions that I came to was that I needed to write another book called The End of Enlightenment. And that's much broader. And again, if there's a if there's a research field that ought to be changed, then really it's that book that'll do it rather than the terrorists, anarchists and Republicans. Although I have to say the other point about it is that if you're talking about enthusiasm, fanaticism leading to terrorism, you know, per having political violence as a solution to your problems. You know, that's what the Genevans ultimately turned to. That's what they turned to in the French Revolution. That's what the Irish turned to in 1798. So as a study of political violence, I think it also has things to say. And the very notion of terror, you know, terror meaning that you need to change your situation radically. And the only way of doing it is by means of violence. And the violence has to be organized but it also has to be you know brutal if you want to if you want to achieve radical change so i suppose that's another thing you mentioned your work on uh, jean baptiste say and now also your forthcoming book on the end of enlightenment how would you say does terrorists anarchists and republican fit into your or fit with your previous and forthcoming work um well i think i've explained how it fits with the with the end of enlightenment um, I suppose that Say was somebody who thought that Britain was going to collapse. And that really makes him what I call an end of enlightenment figure. Obviously, I didn't think of him in those terms when I studied him, uh, when I was writing about him for the for the PhD uh, that became a book. But he was absolutely convinced that if there was one state that was doomed to collapse because it was corrupt, because the economy was corrupt, because it was bankrupt, it was Britain because it spent too much on war and empire. It was Britain. And say really until he dies in 1832, he has very positive relationships with other end of enlightenment figures. You know, an, an example is Jeremy Bentham. They both thought that Britain was doomed as a state And you had to imagine alternatives to Britain. That's why, you know, somebody says sometimes linked with, which is Benjamin Constant, as a liberal, they're both called liberals, complete nonsense, because Constant thinks that Britain's the future, Say thinks that Britain's the past, and you have to construct a politics on the collapse of Britain and accept that parts of the French Revolution were very, very positive. Whereas Constant ended up thinking the French Revolution was terrible and that Britain was the future, which is a kind of depressing thought. But obviously it, it is right. You know, Britain, Britain's mercantile system plus representative government uh, with a role for the people that's constrained really is what we now call modern democracy. So I suppose that's the I just have a kind of I know about the depressing origins of modern democracy. So. That means some of the crises that have happened subsequently, you know, they're not surprising at all. They wouldn't have surprised an 18th century mind in the in the slightest. 
All right, and one last question. Um, what do you expect readers and researchers to find in the book that will be significant for them? Uh, I've no idea, but I it was designed as a good story. So Genevans appear everywhere in the 18th century. It's one of the fascinating things about them. They, they, they turn up in unexpected places. You always find them at your doorstep. Partly it's because there's a crisis in the Republic and they move about a lot. And there are some very, very famous ones. Obviously, Rousseau is the most famous. Necker is another one. Turatini, uh, the Calvinist uh, professor of theology. And they are important. Now, they get involved in lots and lots of schemes. And the story of the attempt literally to move the Republic to Ireland, I think, I think that's a good story. Obviously, the way that the narrative goes is through analyzing ideas. And if I have a worry about the book, which I do about all forms of intellectual history that I'm involved with directly, it is that by narrating it through ideas, then it becomes complicated and it turns readers off. But that is my fear about the book. In other words, somebody who's a narrative historian could come along and write a much more accessible book that would sell uh, many, many more copies than this one will. But obviously, we can only see whether that is the case into the future. Thank you very much.